Hello, and welcome to the Shingo Principles Podcast, the podcast for those interested in building a culture of continuous improvement and sustainable organizational excellence. I'm your host, Mary Price, with the Shingo Institute, a program in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. The Shingo Principles Podcast is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with thought leaders and practitioners around the world experienced in transforming cultures using principles, systems, and tools. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. In this episode of the Shingo Principles podcast, we hear from Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth with Visual Thinking Inc., two-time Shingo Publication Award recipient and Shingo Faculty Fellow as she shares concepts and practical actions that she uses to operationalize respect through work that makes sense, operator-led visuality. Key topics covered in this podcast include anchoring respect, starting in the training room, harnessing the power, delivering stretch content, doing your homework, and defining and reframing inertia and resistance. It's an honor to be here and a pleasure. Hi, everyone. I have been, I'm going to present to you today on the first principle of the 10 guiding principles, respect every individual. And I'm going to tie that to visuality. I've been doing visuality under my company, Visual Thinking Inc. and previously Quality Methods International and the Visual Lean Institute since the early 1980s. We've worked with all kinds of companies and we've done complete conversions. It has been glorious. I've learned a great deal. And now I continue to be associated with the Shingo Prize. Shingo was my, Dr. Shingo was my sensei in the 1980s. And you can find my books and other, and everything, lots of free articles and lots and lots, about 250 free podcasts on my website. I think we're featuring 50 of them right now. My website is visualworkplace.com. The 10 guiding principles of the Shingo model. These are foundational and they are constant. We use them throughout, throughout the journey to the Shingo prize, throughout the journey to enterprise excellence. I'm going to be focusing on this one, respect every individual. And as I say, I'm gonna tie it to visuality, and the technologies of the visual workplace, this foundational principle. Usually when we talk about respect, we divide it into two parts, owed respect and earned respect. They're very simple concepts. Owed respect means the respect we owe each other simply because we share the planet. We're in the same human family because you're part of my society and part of the community. That means I'm courteous or at least civil. I use proper language and I treat you with some deference. Hmm? The earned respect is a little different. It means literally that you've achieved something and you've earned the right to, if you will, a larger quantum of my respect. Nobel laureates, of Olympic champions, people who contribute to the community, who do good work, people in your own household, your children, your parents, your spouse. They've done something to earn your respect and you show it. You show it in your own behavior. 
So that's simple and that's good. And many workplaces are making efforts to make sure that owed respect is part of the culture, is part of the norms, what is expected. And earned respect is an opportunity. And it is on earned respect that I'd like to expand. I'd like to expand by first telling you some things about visuality that you may not already know. And I want to summarize that to begin with, based on my experience, which started in the 1980s. Visuality is a powerful strategic improvement strategy. And if you were to summarize it, you could do it in two ways. One way is to say we grow leaders. That's what visuality does as an intended outcome. We grow leaders. And the other one will come upon in just a moment. This is one of my books. I pointed out to you because it makes a very, very good overview of what's called the 10 doorways, how to create a workforce of visual thinkers. These 10 doorways represent every organizational function, every department, and they're tied to specific visual workplace technologies or methods that bring visuality as a language to that department, that function. The enemy in the visual workplace is information deficits, which by definition, they are invisible. They're deficits, so you can't see them, but they leave a footprint and it's called motion. So motion's the footprint. We become scientists of motion. We find the information deficits and we replace them with visual devices. Visuality then becomes the language of your operations, the vocabulary is those devices, those visual mini systems. They are physical vocabulary, but this is a language of operational excellence. It is living, it is detailed, it is dynamic, and it is owned. It is owned by the people who speak it because when they learn to speak it, they learn to find their information deficits through motion and turn them into this vocabulary. So the language is their own. And this is what we mean when we say the workplace speaks, which is the second big label. We grow leaders, let the workplace speak. And this is a workplace that speaks. This is 2025 visual devices that cut across the 10 doorways. And we have 80,000 of these in our database examples of devices that people have made in order to make the workplace speak and to take the struggle out of their work, whether they be operators, value-add associates, we'll use those interchangeably, or CEO. We all have a language of information sharing and we do it visually. And here's the thing about the visual workplace. Implementing the technologies of the visual workplace will produce unprecedented improvements in your KPIs. We see 50 to 30% increase in productivity all the time, including in the lean landscapes. It's a little bit different when you, when you hit those levels in your KPIs and you're already lean, but visuality is different. It is not the same as lean. It is not a handmaiden. It is a separate and powerful technology. In parallel, Visuality transforms your work culture. And that's our focus today. I call it eye-driven transformation. It is an 
very deeply an engine for respecting every individual. And I want to point out some things today that I think you'll be able to use. We're going to focus on work that makes sense, operator-led visuality, because really the operator is the one who struggles maximally with the motion, with the information deficits in the workplace. And in many organizations, they don't have the power or control to do very much about it. Here's our great ally, brain function, the human brain. This is the inborn engine of visuality, and here's why. 50% of the human brain function is dedicated to finding and to interpreting visual data. It does this continuously and involuntarily, exactly the way our heart beats, exactly the way we breathe. Our mind is doing it now. It is seeking visual information and it is interpreting it. Those are two separate functions. They are combined, but they are sequential. The brain transforms this data that they find into information. That's the first level of interpretation and then into meaning. And here's what happens after that. Meaning then triggers belief and behavior. Belief and behavior derive from that meaning. This is a critically important, a mission critical recipe, function, formula. And it's going on all the time in your workplace, whether you're visual or not. The mind is still seeking and seeking. It just may not be finding. Seeing is thinking. The eyes are the brain. And if you happen to be visually impaired, then the organism, your brain, your body will switch over to what senses it has. With Helen Keller being the absolute pinnacle of what that means and what that can mean. Uh, a, a woman who, whose admiration for, uh, for whom I have, uh, well, as you see, just awestruck admiration. It's beyond my comprehension what she was able to accomplish. With, uh, with her state, with her condition. There are lessons there and lessons that are pertinent to our discussion today. We are visual beings. We are beings of our senses. Therefore, we live in a visual world and it's not the other way around. The world didn't teach us to be visual. We are visual and we needed it to be. We created a world that's visual, a world that's always talking to us, guiding us, directing us, preventing us, facilitating us, facilitating the flow visually. And not the other way around. We didn't learn it because it's there. It's there because we needed it. We required it. In the community, at least, much, much less so in the workplace. Think of your own workplace. I think to a very large extent, people don't comprehend the scope of visuality and what it can do to facilitate our lives, our work, our performance, our outcomes. Just imagine these landscapes that you see in front of you and remove all the visual data, all the visual devices from it and ask yourself, could we have an economy? Would we have an economy or would we still be a village? Hmm? Is your workplace a village or is it a community? So now let's tie respect for every individual, that first principle with visuality. 
a long time ago, I met Charles Dickens and I read his novel, David Copperfield. And the very first line of that novel said something very interesting. It said this, these were the first few years, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life, these pages will show. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way of beginning a novel and also an interesting way of thinking of one's own life. Let me distill it for you because it becomes important. And it is a question that I use with executives and managers and often with operators. Will I be the hero of my own life? This is a question that was in our heart when we were children. What will I be when I grow up? I want to be great. I know I'll be excellent. I know I will shine. I know I will be my life's hero. This was what was in our heart. And it dimmed a little bit. We went through adolescence. It dimmed. And then we went into our adult life. And it maybe dimmed some more, a lot more. Hmm? But in fact, the question remains. It remains deep inside of us. And while it can be ignored, it cannot go away. It's there right now. Will I be the hero of my own life? Could this be a translation? Respect for every individual? Brain function is why visuality is eye-driven. It is why an individual can embrace the language of visuality. It's a natural given, given to each of us ability. It is innate. The question in the workplace is, will it be cultivated? Will it be reignited? Hmm? It requires cultivation because while we're visual beings, we haven't, we don't automatically know how to use that gift for our own benefit or the benefit of our company. Its cultivation requires resources and therefore decisions, not by operators, not yet, but by decision makers, by executives and managers. The corporate decision to cultivate the power within, within every individual. We ask ourselves, how? And I'm here to share with you five protocols, respect building protocols that we use to reignite the hero within. We want that hero to appear. We want to honor it. We want it to be active and contributing to the journey, to the heroic journey of becoming excellent. Hmm? This is part and parcel of what we do when we implement work that makes sense. The transformation begins in the training room. And here are the five how-tos, the five sub-protocols. They may seem very small, but for someone who's been doing this for decades, they are absolutely indispensable. First of all, there's stretch content. Second, we teach with no answers. Third, we use a mechanism called talk amongst yourselves. Of course, I'll explain these. Fourth, we let the grumblers alone. And fifth, Supervisors don't supervise in the training room. Let me unnest each of them. The stretch contact. We intentionally create content that is robust. I learned a long time ago 
<laughs> that the men and women that I meet in companies, especially on the shop floor, the operator floor, especially all value-add associates, including all offices, all agencies, they are at least as intelligent as I. Many, much, much more so. Many. I have so many stories. I knew back then that I had to create content that didn't, pardon the language, it offends me even to say it, dumb down the content, but made it scintillating and interesting and relevant and strong. So a simple question like picture of a visually impaired person walking to board a train. He comes upon a section of the platform that's covered with small raised circles. And we ask, what are the circles for? Why aren't they square? Figure it out. We ask operators, value-add associates, double the function. How will you increase the power of your device? Follow the natural flow line. We ask them to name the safety risks that only you can see. We ask them to make your border do something more than just frame. Hmm? We ask them, find a way to squeeze out the air. Huh? We teach, we ask, we wait. The robust is, I'm sorry, the content is rich, it is provocative, and it is relevant, it is practical. Become a scientist of your work. Become a scientist of motion. Learn and apply the 14 principles of smart placement. Learn and apply the four power levels of visual devices, the 18 types, the 18 types of borders. Framing borders, aisle borders, they came with the landscape. What are the other 16? They're glorious and they're practical and they, they function. Multifunctional visual mini systems. Lots of operators and certainly the trainers say, this is engineering 101. We're not shy about it. We want the content to tease and challenge, delight and satisfy, to feed that internal life of the operator. First in the classroom and then on the production floor. Remember, we are growing leaders by letting the workplace speak through the operator in this case, through the executive when we do visual leadership, through the supervisor when we do visual scheduling. Right now it's the operator where the power is least where the power is least, the process of visual thinking begins. So we want, we take the natural visual think, the natural visual being, us, and we help them move to become visual thinkers where they can actually use this innate ability again and again, second how to teach with no answers. When we ask these questions, we don't give the answers. We say, what do you think? What do you think this is? How does it work? We share over 900 visual, actual visual solutions. How does this work? Tell me more. How is it different? Well, how would you use it? Tell me more. Figure it out. Tell me more. Please say why you think like that. Why you think that? Tell me more. So what we, we want the operator to come out and we can't stand in the way with our answers. The point isn't the answer. The point is to bring the operator forward with his or her answer. So that's the how to two, tied so closely to how to three, 
And by the way, this is mind candy for the operators. Operators love this. And of course, all responses to an open-ended question, which these are, are good responses. How to three, talk amongst yourselves. When we ask the question to begin with, and this is the way every training session begins, we say, okay, find a buddy, find a partner, pair up. How about the person sitting next to you? Now share your ideas back and forth. Talk amongst yourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you how important it is to give the operator a chance to come into the room and to start using the skill set that is already there. It is a skill set that is not utilized that frequently in the workplace in quiet, rapid answers, brainstorming, all of that. We are not great fans because we don't believe it promotes growth. You may need an instant decision, but it isn't there to develop that inner person and that inner respect, that inner hero. You can expect a wall of silence. Everyone will be uncomfortable, but you won't because you know to expect it. You will just stand silently. You might go around from table to table. You lower yourself so that you're not standing over the table. You always leave your cup or your Coke, your Pepsi on the table. You never walk around with your cup. You don't make eye contact. You listen. You just listen. And if you want to say something, you say, yeah, you guys got it. Okay. Mm, tell me more. That's all it is. It's oblique because you're not the person who's important in the room. The person who is important is that operator who is sometimes hearing their voice for the first time in a public setting, which is exactly what I was told at Pratt & Whitney in 1986. Gwendolyn, after a session, I never heard my voice before in public. I really like it. That's what she said to me. Hmm, wow. Great learning. People come out. They become curious. They're always curious on the inside, but no one's ever asked them to exercise it. Rarely so. Maybe you do it in your company. There's some great companies sitting in today. I can name 10 of them that I, I admire endlessly. They have a chance to try things out. Just me and you. No one else is listening. I can stumble. I can be silent. I can say something that doesn't make sense. You're my buddy. You may not like me, but I'm going to be listening to you say something that you don't mean. So we'll be okay together. They self-reflect, even though that word is not used. And operators, value-out associates begin to like the content. They begin to like being in the training room. They feel safe. Safety is the first requirement of every learning environment. They begin to take up space. And in two or three sessions, they're all over you. They've got answers. And at some point you say, okay, okay, okay. Let's move on. And the hero walks in. This, these three rich content, teach with no answers, talk amongst yourselves. These three elements interact together. Mm -hmm. And you get a very active participation. You get people who want to learn. And you leave the grumblers alone, number four. 
I mean, some people have questions that they don't quite get it. It takes them a while. But there are other people who are just grumpy. They will eat you for lunch and they let you know it. Leave them alone. Let the adults be the adults. We're not about teaching good manners and work that makes sense. We know as trainers and consultants and coaches that attendance is mandatory. So do the operators. But participation is always voluntary, always. If people are grumpy, it's a non-issue. They're adults. We have faith in them. Faith is a form of respect. Hmm? We don't persuade, we present. We share lots of examples, and they are vivid. We know that we have a mighty ally in brain function. The brain has an appetite for visual data and that draws the associates in. It is irresistible. That's what the combination is so powerful because we're using an innate ability and innate appetite and we're satisfying it. And people can feel the strength of their own inner process of getting it and they come out. Visual thinking gains traction visual solutions multiply. We see, I'm, call, I'm talking about one company, six months, 1,031, this is the first six months, implemented ideas and a star in every single one of them that the operators decided to put so that you could follow the map and see all of their visual devices. Hmm? Happens all the time, 4,000, 5,000 in the first year. And when you go to the operator, they can explain what is the motion that's being, that's being removed. They can tell you the progress of that device, its iterations, because it doesn't happen once. It has to work. It has to take care of the full information deficit, address the whole thing. So they go through iterations and make their devices more powerful. They create mini systems, multifunctional mini systems. Number five. Supervisors don't supervise in the training room. When a company calls us in, they almost always want us to begin, with rare exception, with work that makes sense because they know that's where they need the most help, getting their operators on board, sustainably on board, continuously on board as a way of life. The process for the supervisors start in the training room. We don't let them sit at the table with their teams. They have too much authority. We want in work that makes sense for the operator to discover their own power. So we can't have positional authority in, on that table, eating up the oxygen, even by a silent presence. Supervisors, we explain to them, of course, and then we debrief afterwards. Supervisors are learning too. They have their manuals on their laps. Their cell phones are off. They are not in the back. <clears throat> on their laptops, <clears throat> pardon me, they're following along and believe me, they're interested as well. The lights go off in their head and they come up during the break and they said, oh my God, I can use that device. Yeah, let's see if we can get it from the operators. I think they'll do that or better, okay? Those are the five respect building protocols that reignite the hero within. The transformation begins in the training room. The transformation begins with our behavior, with us, to set a new framework of possibility for the value-add associates.
And there are other ways of demonstrating respect, very powerful ways. Implemented an official improvement time policy, make the difference between production time and improvement time and track it as such, and many other things. But these are five, and I think you can see you could use them elsewhere. Just a few concluding remarks. That's how we begin to intentionally and systematic, systematically cultivate the power within this respect for every individual. Ono said it so well, co-architect with Shingo of the Toyota production system. People don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think. Everything that Toyota does is to support that outcome. Ono noticed it. It wasn't that he knew about it. He started to work with operators in a new way and he noticed that what he did helped them think. Just a final thought. The problems that face your company every day may seem like big problems, but are they your biggest opportunity? How much will your operators contribute if you let them? Thank you. Thank you, Mary. I'll take questions. Okay, so the very first question we have says, given that we are visual beings, is there a conflict with our accelerating digital world? Ah, it's very interesting. In fact, finally, after about 10 years of so-called visual management, which by the way, is about 10% of workplace visuality, it's the part where we manage visually that is different than performing. But finally, the marketing around visual managing management has quieted down a bit, the dependency on monitors and digital information sharing. There's something called touch knowledge. It is, uh, in fact, they have found, brain research has found some rare human beings who actually have brain cells in their fingers. But the touching itself gives us information that even though we can't track or calculate, calculate adds to our understanding. The digital world will not go away. It is important, but it is only part of the equation. So it isn't an either or switch. It is putting it in its right perspective, visual management in its right perspective, and focusing more broadly on visual workplace, workplace visuality to encompass the rest. I hope that's the beginning of an answer. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, next question. Um, how do you get buy-in from stakeholders that visual devices are there to help them and not to threaten them? By stakeholders, if they're lateral stakeholders, if it's operator to operator, first of all, the process by which these devices happen eye-driven visuality coming from the operator, his invention, her invention, her experiment, allows that device to hold a different position. It is not being imposed. If you're working on a three-shift operation where third shift may not even hardly know you or maybe know you well, too well, then we make sure to allow third shift to experiment while first shift waits, second shift to experiment, first shift to experiment. But this isn't something that we manage. This is, we teach tolerance. 
look, it'll be your turn. Let's find out who goes first. Let's flip a coin or do it alphabetical and find out what about your idea works. So that part needs to be finessed because throughout we need to respect the person on the third shift as well. And we have something that we call, you go first. And it's a dialogue and we hear our operators say it and they say, you know, I love my idea, but you go first. They don't have to be afraid that their idea won't be seen, won't be used, won't be tested. It's just that you're gonna go first. So this is another opportunity to groom the culture and begin to erase the fear. You'll have your turn. It's built in, nobody. Hmm, that's enough of an answer. Okay. I hope. Um, next question, with Zoom meetings and training now the norm, do you have examples of how to make it visual and pull the operator out? So you're asking, you might be asking, is the training as effective when it's being given online? That might be an answer. But the training is exactly the same. When during COVID, our licensees trained, they may have trained with the screens in the way and with half 15 people in the room instead of 30, but they still trained and some trained via Zoom and people worked, for example, we have something called smart placement where operators work on their map. Well, there's a breakout room and they had a map and they began to, dis they, just as though they were at a table, they discuss, uh, you know, this kind of a layout, there's still the risk over here and can we try it this way? And they move things around electronically. Sometimes companies will plug into an electronic um, tool. I'm sorry, the name escapes me right now, but it, it's a way of, of moving things around visually. Um, I'm sorry, I, it escapes me. But yes, it, it works online. You don't get the feeling, the kind of robust celebration and excitement or, or animated conversation. You don't get that level, but you get a level of it and it is sufficient to move on. So absolutely, the training absolutely works online. It's the connection that matters, and it's the way that you as the trainer handles the interventions that is the most telling part. If you feel confident in doing it, it will happen and will happen with very, very good results. There are a lot of barriers right now, no question. So. Okay, along the same lines, um, mm -hmm. so uh, talking about IT, how do you overcome the fact of where people say the information is in the computer and they resist visual management? <laughs> oh, you mean visual workplace? It's okay for the information to be in the computer and visual management, but that's the problem. The information is in the computer, but where is it? And how do I access exactly what I need? You need to experiment with this. There's no, I will sound like I'm selling snake oil if I say to you, this is an easy one. The information is in the computer is for somebody who doesn't need a particular, a particular datum of information and thinks it's in there. Yeah, it's in there somewhere. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You have to, so. I'm going to leave it at that. It, that should speak to the question directly. Okay, thank you. We could, we could go back and forth, but this isn't the forum. Um, okay, next question. Is it possible to bring out the hero within outside of the training room and how might that happen? 
Yes, of course. I don't, to how might that happen? I would answer, I know how that happens as it begins in the training room. And that transfer, the, the relationship is changed in the training room. You need to have a laboratory where you work the experiment. And the experiment is, I'm going to be hands off the operator. I'm going to show them tantalizing examples. I'm going to ask them questions that are open-ended. I'm going to give him a chance to figure out. I'm going to let him hear others, her hear other people talk about it, her colleagues. So she gets the knack of it. She's going to see that this environment is safe and she'll come out a little bit. That, what happens then, and there's a great deal more kind of scientific framework around this, but let me shorthand it to say, one's identity shifts. One begins to see oneself in a different frame because I'm being treated differently, but because there's also room inside for me to grow. The stress is lifted. And where the stress is lifted, room resides. There's space inside. There's an ineluctable, unstoppable desire in us to grow and to serve, not just to grow egotistically, but to serve. It's a compulsion. It's the way we're built. I'm sorry, I'm out of time. I can't tell you the progression, but it's mind function. That happens in the classroom. It happens for the supervisor as well. So you create this safe environment and that safe environment continues out onto, into operations on the production floor for the supervisor as well, even though she begins to supervise to use her authority. And you begin, it's like circles and ripples. And eventually, if you throw several rocks into the pond, those ripples will overlap. That's precisely what happens. And I'll give you a big, a big uh, piece here that I think will help you. We use, not as methodology, but as concept, the, two, the dual questions. What do I need to know? What do I need to share? What do I need to know right now in order to do my work? What do I need to share so that others can do their work? That's not methodology, but that awareness is an awareness that we bring out onto the shop floor and it continues. If you mean as a continuation of the training, that's the point. You feel it, you learn it in the classroom, you go out, it's still there. The identity, when we shift our identity, You've heard this before. We don't go back. We don't want to be that anymore. We want to be this. And then we want to be the next expansion of our understanding. You can think of it as a power, but it isn't exactly that. It's that our will is eased. We say, when you liberate information, you liberate the human will. So the will can then elect to enroll in the corporate intent or elect not to. If they do, then it's clear. If they, if they don't, then it's clear. But the, it's a very important discussion. It's a very important question. And that grows, the ripples grow. This is how we do a visual conversion starting on the operator level. This is exactly what happens. It's systematic, it's intentional, it is designed. And I have to say, I'm, it works. I've been doing this for well over 30 years. I won't say the next number. It works. The KPIs come and the cultural change is a transformation. It is dazzling. 
And yet it's intentional. But I'm always dazzled to see growth in people and to see their ownership. And yes, you have to take steps to sustain it. You have to put an infrastructure in place. That's part of the conversion. But first you need that power of the individual and the respect blossoms. We speak to equals. People become our equals, even if you're an executive. Fear has nothing to do with it. I have something important to say to you. I can help. This is an operator. Operator will knock on the door. Hello, Mr. CEO. I got something really important to tell you. Mm. Oh, and I've got 15 buddies with me. (laughs) They feel the same way. You have something that's alive. Dazzling. It works. Thank you so much for presenting today. And thanks to our listeners for joining in and for all of your great questions. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for additional educational opportunities or you would like to learn more about the Shingo model, please visit our website at shingo.org. Please remember to subscribe and to tune in to next time.